Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and today I am joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. Welcome, Kathleen. I'm so glad to be back for another Scott opera. Yes, Sir Walter Scott is the author who wrote the work on which this opera is based, and it's a Rossini opera. Yes, today we are doing La Donna del Lago, The Lady of the Lake by Rossini. The Lady of the Lake, and it has nothing to do with the Arthurian legend. (laughs) I don't believe it does anyway. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Don't be fooled. There's a lady and there's a lake, but that's the only connection. Yeah, it's a lake that's a loch, no? Yes, it is set in Scotland along the the shores of Loch Katrin, and the lady is a beautiful woman named Elena. All right. Well, We're not going to spend a lot of time setting up the story right now because we want to jump right into this first piece of music because unlike most Rossini operas, this doesn't have a long, beautiful, standalone overture. A little bit of atmospheric music to get us in the mood and then we jump right in to a gorgeous choral piece with the shepherds and shepherdesses here in the highlands of Scotland. Thank you. 
This is Opera for Everyone, and today's opera is Rossini's La Donna del Lago, The Lady of the Lake. And that first piece from our opera was the shepherds and shepherdesses of the Highlands greeting the day, setting the scene for us in the Highlands. And now we're going to meet our title character, the lady herself, and she's going to be on the lake in her boat. Yes, Elena lives on an island in the middle of this lake, and so she's often seen traveling by boat to the mainland. And this is set in the most beautiful region in Scotland. It's just this gorgeous scenery. And Elena arrives by boat, and she gets off, and she's just so so inspired by the beauty around her. She's very connected to the to the flowers, to the earth, to the nature of everything. And of course, she's also in love. She's extremely beautiful. She's found her true love. She's longing for him. His name is Malcolm. Oh, she's um, not just in love with nature. Hmm? <laughs> no, I think probably the, the the nature love is inspired by the 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 true love for this man. Because this is, I mean, as long as we're talking about romance here, this is an opera from the Romantic period. It's true. It is the, this is the story that actually kicked off the Romantic period in Scotland. And in fact, kicked off the concept of Scotland as a place that was highly romantic. It's not really something that, that was appearing in literature before Sir Walter Scott. He's really responsible for creating this image of Scotland as this beautiful romantic country full of romantic people. Well, that would explain why so many operas are made from his works. And the first opera that I did with you, Pat, actually, for Opera for Everyone is Lucia de Lammermore, which yes. is from a Sir Walter Scott novel. I remember it well. He was He's like the James Patterson of his day. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote so many things. Maybe that's not the right comparison. I'm trying to think of another really popular, because he was really good. He's a good writer. Um, but everybody read him. I mean, he was was much more popular in his day than someone like Jane Austen, who we remember from a similar time period. Mm. But Scott has really, nobody really reads Scott anymore. There's a bit of a resurgence in his popularity in the mid 20th century. Some of his books got made into very romantic movies with, you know, that's where you get the image of the princess wearing the pointy hat and the veil. That's, really? That's from Ivanhoe. Yeah, that's from one of his novels that was made into a, a movie in the 50s. Oh, well, um, interesting point about Ivanhoe. That was the opera seria that Sir Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame, that great comedic operetta duo, he made his opera seria based on that Ivanhoe story of Walter Scott. Yeah, Scott is Scott's interesting because he is so out of fashion these days that I think it's easy <laughs> to forget how much of a an impact mm. he had not only in his own time period which is late 18th early 19th century. The source material for this was um, was published in 1810 and then the opera itself is just just a few years later in um, in 1819 I believe. Yep, premieres in Naples and and Rossini apparently gets a hold of a French copy or, or is some a French person who comes over on the Prix de Rome. We've talked about the Prix de Rome on other episodes. Talented French artists, musicians, uh, the state will pay for them to go for three years to Italy to study. And one of those, I don't remember his name, one of those fellows brought over a copy of the translation into French of this work and Rossini was inspired by it and he is his Neapolitan 
his go-to Neapolitan librettist, Totola, did the work of creating this libretto. Well, we, I'm sure, will have much more to say about Romanticism and Scottish nationalism and everything, but I think we should probably listen to this beautiful aria that Elena sings about her true love, Malcolm. Kathleen, did you hear those horns? I did. I wonder what's coming. I wonder what's coming. Well, hold on to that thought. (laughs) I want to just say that that was a beautiful piece of music and sung by a beautiful young woman. 
She is beautiful. Her name is Elena, obviously. It's it's Ellen in the original source material. I think she's very consciously named after Helen of Troy in the sense that she's she's the most beautiful woman ever is something oh. we'll get a sense of in this opera. And, and part of the trouble is that she's so beautiful that she's, well, this could be renamed Everybody Falls in Love with Elena. <laughs> yes, yes. And that can be problematic for the people who fall in love with her. And for her. It's true, because she already is in love herself. One of the people who's in love with her, who she's just sung about, Malcolm, they both are in love with each other. So if there was no other complication, then our story would be over. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, (laughs) she has um, another lover, and she's about to potentially meet another one. Well, before we meet him, I just want to comment on the style of singing For folks who know Rossini, you know that he is bel canto, beautiful singing, that beautiful style of opera that we associate with that virtuosic technique, that that ability to potentially improvise, although Rossini often did write out his decorative pieces because he didn't want the singers to, to overdo it, essentially, but it's it's can be very decorated, but it also must be very, very precise. It's demanding of the singers. It requires agility and skill, and it's it's just a distinctive and, and fun kind of singing. And the other thing Rossini, I always think about when I think of Rossini, is, is tunefulness. These tunes are just the kind of thing that can stick with you. When we think of Rossini, oftentimes the first opera you think of is Barbara of Seville. That is by far his most popular, most frequently produced opera. Not now, but later on in the show, you and I are going to have to have a nice conversation about why we don't see this one on the program more often. There may be reasons, but I promise you it's not the quality of the music. The music is phenomenal, and it's a fun story to talk about. So we're going to have a good time on this show. <laughs> now, those horns again. Who's, who's coming? Who's going to show up? Well, so they're they're hunting horns, but they're also horns that that announce that the king is perhaps coming. Perhaps, because, perhaps I say perhaps because well, first I'll say the king is James V of Scotland. He is an actual historical figure. So yes, that he is. The, <laughs> the one thing about this uh, this story is it blends a lot of real historical figures with some mm. some fictional figures and and kind of elides some people so that. Maybe they're named a certain thing that is a real person, but that they did some things that maybe they didn't do in the historical record. Historical and, fiction. Good, <laughs> historical good fiction. Historical Very early fiction. historical fiction. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's Scott. James V of Scotland did, in reality, sometimes like to disguise himself as a commoner and wander about the countryside. And yes, he was nicknamed, I read, the King of the Commons. Exactly. And for he, this, habit this is of real. His. He did this all the time, mm-hmm. uh, apparently, <laughs> which is a little unusual. But um, he was a very larger than life figure, I would say. And he is doing that in this opera. He is is dressed as a common huntsman. He has been with his companions who do know of his identity, hence the horns. And he's wandered off from them. And one of the things that he's doing is he has heard that there is this really beautiful woman named Elena. Yes. And, and we could just, we can talk more about this later. We could point out that we think probably one of the reasons he oftentimes 
dressed as a commoner and went around was to meet the ladies. Yeah, so I mean, James, what we, you know, so James fathered at least nine illegitimate children. We know this. He had many, many mistresses. He was yes, married at least twice. nine. <laughs> there's yes. a, it's nice they say at least nine because there's probably more that we don't know about. Because there's nine mistresses. they can name, right? <laughs> he was a very <laughs> he was he was a lover. You know, he was uh, yeah. he's probably best known now as the father of Mary Queen of Scots, who was. Um, his only surviving legitimate child and became queen um, when she was just a, a very small baby as he died when she was, I think, about six months old. But he had many older illegitimate children who they become very important in this in this region, but because none of them are legitimate, they can't inherit. And that causes all kinds of problems. <laughs> oh, yes, as these things always do. Yeah, you can go the other direction too because he's the nephew of the infamous King Henry VIII. His mother was Henry's older sister. And it is because of him that ultimately Queen Elizabeth, Henry's long-serving virgin daughter, who clearly has no children, it's his grandson, Mary Queen of Scots' son, who ultimately takes the throne after Elizabeth Mm -hmm. dies. So there is just a little bit of English history, just (laughs) Scottish English history, in a little ball that you don't need to worry about for this opera but it's it's just fun but that's james the fifth don't need to know any of that here (laughs) but he's a real guy (laughs) it's true that you don't really need to know any of that it's just kind of interesting context but you do need to know that there was also and this is in this opera there was a lot of internal strife in scotland itself Mm -hmm. so this is written in the beginning of the 19th century but it is set far before that in the time of henry the eighth um it's set in the early mid 16th century. Yeah, so it's um, Scott is doing kind of an interesting thing here, where the history of Scotland and its quarrels with England is quite upsetting and bloody, and tons of really bad things happened, especially quite recently for readers of this piece. The mid 18th century saw the Jacobite rebellions, which yeah. were once again lots of English history, very complicated, but a lot of of internal wars very bloody between England and Scotland so when Scott is writing that's all fairly that's recent in people's memory there are people who are alive who would have fought in those wars so Scott is writing and and taking us back much farther in time to say okay well why don't we look at Scotland at a totally different period and we're not going to talk about the struggles between England and Scotland we're going to talk about the struggles internally in Scotland which are interesting and form a, a big part of the plot of this this opera and nevertheless are intertwined with England a bit. Yes, of course, indeed. (laughs) So anyway, we're about to meet King James V of Scotland, who is disguised. He has been wandering around as as a man named Uberto, is what he's calling himself in this opera. And he's heard about the beauty of this woman, and he is hoping to stumble upon her. And as luck would have it, he stumbles upon her and is entranced. And you can tell from the way he expresses himself, not only does she meet his expectations, she exceeds them and he falls hard for her.
That was King James V of Scotland disguised and flirting outrageously with our heroine, Elena. He's got a cover story, right? Yeah, so he's he says he's just sort of been hunting with his, with his boys, and he's gotten separated <laughs> from them, and he's lost, doesn't know what to do, and, and she's very kind-hearted, and she offers him shelter. She says, well, I have this cabin, you know, and, and it's on an island in the middle of the lake, and I will row you over in my rowboat, and I'll give you shelter and, and until your friends find you again, or et cetera. And I remember when I was first watching this, I was like, is she propositioning him? I know. You're thinking, girlfriend, this is not what you do to some strange man you meet in the right. woods. <laughs> and, and you're in love. You have a true love. That you and were just was, singing about. <laughs> and she does live with her father, so it's not as if it's just her. But she is this innocent maiden out by herself picking flowers, and this virile man comes along, and she's just like, come on home with me. And she's not really characterized as, as foolish, just she's really kind, I guess, and, and, and he's very charming. Right. But it does come off as naive. But he's laid on the flattery pretty thick. He even calls her a goddess at one point. I think James James knew how to talk to a lady. I guess he had some experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, she does, in fact, take him home. But before we get to see the two of them in her home, they depart the stage, and we hear those hunting horns again, and his men come searching for him. They rush onto the stage, and they don't find him because he is left with the kind-hearted and lovely lady. If you were in charge of keeping track of where the king was, I think you'd be kind of freaked out right now because <laughs> he's left you. Either that or you're totally used to it with this guy. <laughs> That's true. scene we see her cottage mm -hmm. and she again all sweetness and innocence and hospitality invites him in begins to make him welcome giving him some food some drink and he can hardly believe himself what abundance of kindness flows from your gentle heart and she just says well you're in Scotland this is how we esteem hospitality we treat our guests well here in Scotland it's true. And, and you do see this later on. I think she's being quite, I mean, she's being quite literal. They do believe in hospitality. This is something that appears in, in the Scott work as well. It's 
connecting them back to this tradition that goes all the way back to the Greeks, where if you break bread in somebody's home, then they're your guest and you would defend them with your life at that point. They're a part of your your ken, as the Scottish would say. And this is problematic because one of the things that <laughs> he yes. realizes very quickly as he's looking around at the the furnishings in this cottage is that they have the insignia of her clan, Clan mm. Douglas. And he has quite a history with Clan Douglas. Um, Doesn't and, he, though? And James V had even more of a history with Clan Douglas, which is one of the oldest Scottish clans. Mm-hmm. And they they have been his enemies for some time. Although he, he does express regret that they have become enemies. They, they weren't always enemies. He knows now that she is the daughter of his enemy. And he gets some very big Romeo and Juliet resonances here. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When he sees all this stuff in, in the gentlest possible way, he's like, oh, who do I thank for this hospitality? <laughs> And she says who her father is. And she's not witnessing this, but as the audience, we get to witness his <gasps> response to <laughs> realizing, oh, this is Douglas. <laughs> is she a Capulet then? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to dig into this a little bit, and you may have turned up a few other things, and they do play with the names a little bit, but James V of Scotland was not treated well by a certain Archibald Douglas, 6th Earl of Angus, in his youth. Because he ascended to the throne under the age of two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he contended with, with a regency. So basically, he was yeah. too young, and this would happen with his daughter, Mary, too young to rule. So someone else ruled for him. And in, the, in this case, that was his, it's his stepfather, isn't it? Well, there were three regents. First, mm-hmm. it was his, was his mother, but his mother pretty quickly, re- I mean, this was all during the early days of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Remember, we've still got King Henry VIII over there in England. Causing and trouble. He's, <laughs> well, he's a pretty important figure because this is when England is thrown off. Catholicism under mm-hmm. Henry VIII. He's he's established Protestantism, or his version of it anyway, in England. John Knox has shown up in Scotland, and so Protestantism is taking root uh, more naturally there with his mm-hmm. work. But you have a lot of strong Catholic feelings. I mean, so there's all this religious stuff. None of this is handled in the opera, by the way. But the reason that with the Douglases and James is, and the series of three different regions, is because his mother... Mary Tudor, older sister, who's not, by the way, super close to her brother, but she still is more inclined to be oriented toward England, which means Protestantism versus France, which means Catholicism. Mm -hmm. She's like, I I need to marry myself to an English-oriented guy. And so she gets married to this Archibald Douglas. And the minute she gets married, she stops being regent because Parliament says, "Mm -mm, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And they, they put this other male relative, a steward, in charge. But then ultimately, the Douglas, it becomes the third regent. But then they want him to step aside, and he doesn't. And he essentially, this is where it gets ugly, he imprisons James. Mm-hmm. And he's getting up in his teen years at this point, towards the end of it. So there is a good chunk of time when John Stewart, the male relative, he's basically the closest male relative, is the region, and, and that doesn't seem to be problematic. But then when his stepfather, Archibald Douglas, 6th Earl of Angus, takes over 
and doesn't let go and literally imprisons him so he can wield power. By the way, at this point, his mother is estranged from her husband. Mm-hmm. So he's holding on to James to hold on to power. And his mother's trying to get a divorce slash annulment to dissolve the marriage. But as long as he possesses the person of the king, right. he can still command power and authority and all the goodies that go along with that. Uh, so it's it's ugly. It's it's very, very ugly. It is. And, and it would have resonated very much so during the time period that this opera was produced and that the poem was written because that is during a time period that we know as the Regency in England, which Mm -hmm. lasted for roughly 10 years at the beginning of the 19th century, where the king, the famous King George who presided over the American Revolution, um, (laughs) had gone mad and was replaced by his son as a regent, his his mm-hmm. grown son, adult son, and he acted as regent until he was he was finally later crowned King George the the fourth. So the idea of there being a, a political crisis involving a regency would have really resonated with audiences. One little tidbit I think is really interesting too is that the the Douglases would continue to bedevil the the crown of Scotland far yes. beyond George V. They are widely believed to have assassinated Mary's second husband, actually, Mm -hmm. Um, Lord Darnley. And that gets into, once again, lots more English history. But this is a very established rivalry. It sort of behooves us to say that there are constantly, during this time period and the next kind of 100, 150 years after it, conflicts between the Crown of Scotland and the Highland Lairds. So the Highland Lairds basically operate as local semi-feudal princes throughout Scotland. And the crown is a fairly new-ish crown. There wasn't always a king. Um, And whether that king is going to be going to be Scottish or going to be beholden to the English throne is a big issue. Mm -hmm. James was very friendly with Henry VIII at one point too. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of tension, and then that lasts all the way through until when this this poem was written. There's also a lot of tension because most of the laird-like figures at that point in the early 19th century in Scotland are actually English lords who have taken over the land and have become these huge rich landowners and are really forcing the people of Scotland off their land in order to to make a profit. So. There's a lot of, as we mentioned, <laughs> a lot of tension with Scotland and, and England throughout this time period. Yeah, and alliances do change. Very much so. Oftentimes influenced by monetary concerns and religious concerns sometimes, but even more often monetary concerns. And you mentioned the murder of, <laughs> the Douglases were implicated in the murder of Lord Darnley, who was married to Mary Stuart, who, by the way, was his first cousin. Well, he was also the grandson of Archibald Douglas, sixth Earl of Angus, because he was the son of the only surviving daughter, child, of Archibald Douglas. I mean, it's just, it's very interwoven, and yeah, never mind. I had to no, I mean, get it is, three pieces of clean paper to write this all out. <laughs> but it's, it's, just, it's <laughs> fascinating. I, like, I find it really fascinating, and it does, it's something I think that it's important to understand that the readers would have been very aware of 
a lot of this. Right. That the way that we maybe follow Kate and William these days is like a thousandfold what people in the early 19th century were following the ins and outs of the monarchy. That was really the beginning of some very, what we would call celebrity culture today. So this would have been very, very much in people's minds as they watch the opera. Right. I mean, in the fact that we still know the name Mary, Queen of Scots, we may not know James V necessarily, but Mary, Queen of Scots still <laughs> still gets TV series made about her and yeah. all sorts of things. But uh, in the background, but when James sees indications that this is the home of Douglas, you can see why there's anger, there's fear, there's, of all places, she's his daughter? Are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> And that's real drama. That is, is operatic drama. Very of much course. so. Not to mention the fact that she is in love with somebody else, which also is going to cause some problems for him and his his suit. Yes. Yes, there's that too. And then and then there's going to be the father. But before we get to all of that, <laughs> to return us to what's happening on on the stage at this point, after he's realized this even though that that does give him pause, he's still trying to pursue her. He still thinks she's so beautiful. And I think it's interesting how she's kind of into it. I mean, she's in love with Malcolm, but this guy's charming. And you can see that there's a struggle a little bit. And so fortuitously (laughs) on the scene arrives a horde of women. Yes. (laughs) Who are her companions that she says, come and chat with her each day. And <laughs> this includes her main lady friend, Duenna <laughs> Albina, who sees that something strange is going on, that her friend has invited this handsome young man to her house and they're alone and, and puts a stop very quickly <laughs> to the flirting. Yes, she seems to be the, the voice of moral reason, conscience, and P.S. I know what your father has planned for you. Mm-hmm. Don't mess things up. Exactly. She really is a very similar to a, a figure like the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, not to once again do our Romeo and Juliet references, but I, I think Scott <laughs> is, is heavily influenced by that play at this point. But yeah, so she comes in and, and puts a stop to that, and the, the women's chorus sings a beautiful little piece. And we'll hear just a little, a little bit of the women's chorus. Friends have let this beautiful admirer, Uberto, know there's a Rodrigo in the picture. It's true. We have not talked about Rodrigo yet, but Rodrigo is her sort of fiancé. So she's in love with Malcolm, but her father wants her to marry Rodrigo. Her betrothed. Her, right, yeah. Her, I don't know if it's their like official official, but I mean, the, the women are, they've got a veil and they're putting it on her head. So <laughs> they, it's pretty, pretty set. 
they want her to marry Rodrigo. He's the leader, the the warrior, I would say. Like her father's kind of the leader elder of the clan, Douglas, but Rodrigo or Roderick as he's he's known in the poem is the warrior and he's going to be kind of the direct enemy of James. Yeah, he's the he's the head of the army, of course. He's the alpha male, basically. Yeah, exactly. And he wants the alpha female. And this character, very quickly, Roderick Dew is his name in, in the poem, becomes absolutely beloved. He's not really like a main, main character in this, but he's more in the poem. And there are, there's a Highland distillery named after him. There are pubs in Ireland named after him. He becomes this sort oh. of symbol of Irish nationalism and patriotism in real life, which I think is kind of a funny little afterlife for that character. Oh, interesting, because in the opera, he is just all like chest puffing and swagger and... Um, yeah, he's kind of he a, is one serious tenor, I'll tell you. Yeah, Poof. he's kind of a William Wallace figure, like a yeah, he's like that kind of a William Wallace reincarnated, I think, to to the people of Scotland. Yeah, he is a great fighter, and he knows it, and he has been promised this beautiful woman that every phone falls in love with, and he believes he's entitled to her. And you know what? That makes everyone unhappy, including Elena and James <laughs> and Malcolm. It doesn't make her father unhappy, though. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the fathers always win in the end, right? <laughs> yeah, never. Never um, <laughs> Well, when Uberto hears about this Rodrigo fellow, he gets a little sad, but then he finds a glimmer of hope. So he doesn't know about Malcolm exactly. He just kind of thinks, oh, she's maybe a little into me and she's so beautiful and I'm the king. So clearly this is all going to work out for me just fine. So Even when though hear- I haven't told her that I'm the <laughs> right. king. So when he hears that she's engaged, he can sense there's hesitation and sadness in this news that she's communicating to him or, or that the women really more communicating to, to him. So he thinks, well, she loves somebody else. Maybe it's me. <laughs> And, and so he we, asks her directly. He yeah. says, perhaps you have feelings for someone else. Uh-huh. So we get this beautiful duet that's sort of half misunderstandings, half longing, where she is speaking about loving someone else. And he is hearing that as she maybe loves me. But really, she's saying in this kind of coded way that she loves Malcolm, who we still have yet to meet, but we'll meet soon. But it's a... I continue to find it funny that the way this opera is structured is absolutely setting up a love story between James and Elena. It is this beautiful Romeo and Juliet, two houses. He's a king in disguise. She's beautiful. So we keep one, and there's a rival. But who is Malcolm? Who's this guy that's coming in and destroying this beautiful plot? I just think it's very funny that this whole storyline kind of comes to naught. It, it is fascinating, because, but it's it's an interesting, well, we'll, we'll see as we go along with the story. There, it does have some interesting things to say about kingship. And one of the ideas that Elena is going to remark on a couple of times throughout the opera is this conflict between love and duty. Mm-hmm. And so they get to play around with that. I mean, it's not entirely conventional the way you mm-hmm. expect a love story to work out the way you expect even a political drama to work out. Yeah, and and you're right that she's the one that brings up love and duty, but that will become more relevant later on because we can't forget that 
kings in disguise have to take off their disguise at some point and then they're kings. And at this point, I mean, I can tell you this much at least, James was married. <laughs> he had a child. Um, you know, he's not, there's no, there's no happy ending in which he makes her Queen of Scotland. I'll, I'll reveal that much. No, but but there is something of a happy ending in this opera. We can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> Let's hear the duet. <laughs> Our Lady of the Lake, Elena, and Uberto, the King in Disguise, not being in love. <laughs> Could have fooled me. <laughs> <laughs> he knows he's in the house of an enemy, and he tells himself, I have to get out of here. Before he leaves, though, hospitality must truly be shown. All of the girlfriends give him a beautiful cup from which to drink. The ceremony of hospitality must be observed. She also drinks. And it's time for a proper parting, a proper farewell. Yes, something kind of like a lover's farewell, really. Yeah, and as they sing this pretty duet, it you've brought up Romeo and Juliet a few times, and I'm going to say it's a little bit of, parting is such sweet sorrow and it's really hard for them to actually say goodbye and depart and it it reinforces how i guess uh, how a little bit strange it is that you have this 
love quadrangle going on. Um, but I think he's sort of, there's a way in which I think he's kind of not real to her and he isn't real. You know, we know that his, his identity isn't his identity. And I think he's kind of this stranger mythical figure to her. And so it's okay for her to express her feelings. Anyway, there's, they do this beautiful duet where they, they do attempt to part. And they do finally. He does finally leave. Yes, he does depart, and, and she sends him off with her best friend who's going to row him across the lake. And I think she expects she probably will never see him again. But it's an opera, and so <laughs> let's enjoy the goodbye song. sort of love the king <laughs> saying goodbye and she is going to go off by herself to to contemplate this sort of crazy thing that's just happened to, to her and we're finally going to meet the character that she's been thinking about this whole time malcolm malcolm as soon as she leaves malcolm comes in and he has not seen her for a while it's not really clear how long but there's, a, there's an element to their love that is forbidden because her father wants her to marry, as we've mentioned, Rodrigo, or Roderick, as he's known. So they've been parted for some time, and Malcolm has found his way back to her home. And he comes into the, to the hall, sees that no one is there, and begins to sing about how blessed the, even the very stones and walls of this building are to him because he knows that they have sheltered her. And, and as I said, he's not aware that she's somewhere in the house. He just, just sees no one around and, and starts singing about how much he loves her and his, his memories of their time together. Right. And before we hear Malcolm, we should mention that this is what we call in opera, a trouser role. But of course, because it's Scotland, no trousers are involved. <laughs> it's a kilt role. <laughs> yes, it's a kilt role. <laughs> Malcolm is played by a mezzo-soprano. <laughs> 
I, I think it's interesting. Like you are so used to things like this that I think it's you take it in your stride. I still find it so jarring to see trousers rolls. And this, I thought, was the most jarring one for me that I've ever seen. I found it, it very much took me out of the story because it's very clearly a woman and it's very clearly a mezzo singing to another mezzo. And it was just, it was an interesting experience because I think you could, you could overlay a reading on this that there are two manly tenors who are fighting over Elena and their love for her. And then, of course, she has no real use for either of them and ends up with the mezzo. Well, okay, but you need to remember this is this is first produced in the early 19th century. True. And we are, this is the point when we're transitioning. I mean, we were a little ways into it, but we're transitioning from the castrato being the male lead with mm-hmm. the very high voice. And so it's a it's a transition because when we think of it, one of the bel canto operas that we did in Opera for Everyone was the uh, Montagues and Capulets, Bellini's take on the Romeo and Juliet story. And Romeo there is is played by a mezzo. So it's the love story mm-hmm. between, t- but it but it's, it's a transition period and mm-hmm. we're not accustomed. When this was premiered, this was not strange at all. And I mean, you yeah. may be accustomed to, to seeing the young men, young teenagers being played by women. As we saw in Peleas and Melesson, the, the boy mm-hmm. is sometimes played by a, a woman. I think the thing that, that surprises me about it, I guess, is, is that I come at it as somebody who's really studied this period in history and knows opera singers were so highly sexualized in society and often mm-hmm. worked as courtesans as well. They were very high paid courtesans, not all of them, but you know, if you were an opera singer, you would have been excluded from high society because of the, the way in which society cast them as part of, they would call it the demi-monde. And so I, I'm sure they would have been used to it, but I, I find it hard to believe that there wouldn't have been, I don't know, I just, to me, it seems, it's very queer. <laughs> it just seems very queer to me. Um, and I, I, you know, that's not something I think we do too much in terms of, of opera readings, but... It just, I find it interesting that, that she eschews the two very manly men and then chooses the, the character that is, is both played by a woman and is, I think, more feminized in the, in the story. Well, Malcolm is one of the leaders of the fighting clan, so he's got a lot it's to true. recommend him Although on that he front doesn't too. ever really fight like the other ones do. He kind of just disappears a little bit, but... I guess we'll we'll see we'll see well, him later. He's already won the lady's heart. What why does he have to fight? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's meet Malcolm.
That was Malcolm, the true love of the Lady of the Lake, Elena. And he's all by himself for this entire scene. He has three pieces of music where he pours out his heart. The happily ever after that he wants with his lady is not going to be easy because he knows the father does not favor him. He has left and the scene is bare and the father enters. This is Douglas. Malcolm is nearby and he is concerned. Elena, in greeting her father, is tries to make him happy, but her father's not entirely pleased with her, is he? No, well, she's she's still resisting the idea that she should be engaged to Rodrigo, and he is very adamant about this. This is a slight deviation from the source material, which I think is kind of interesting. In the source material, the father actually says, I want you to marry Roderick, but I would never force you to marry someone you didn't love. Oh. But in this, it's which is a little bit more of a straightforward plot point, on it, honestly, it's easier that the father is just like, mm-hmm. you know, very strict. He says, you need to prove to me that you're a dutiful daughter, basically, and do what I tell you to do. Right. And he ties her duty up with being patriotic, being true to Scotland. And he mm-hmm. he is concerned with Scotland's troubles and her being the wife of this military leader is important to being a good Scottish patriot. Yeah, exactly. Even though Malcolm, we've talked about Malcolm, is also a Highland patriot, he's not the leader of the Highland patriots the way that Rodrigo is. Rodrigo is really basically in the, in the story equivalent to the king. In, at least in, in stature in her father's eyes. So let's listen to this man, Douglas, and get a sense of the strength of his feelings. Venia del genitor Mostrami te la figlia Degna, degna del genitor Degna, degna del genitor And that is Douglas, Elena's father. After his departure, Ellen is left alone. And she comments so succinctly, in this fatal conflict of love and duty, in so much sorrow, what shall I do? This is hard for her. She wants to be a good daughter. She wants to be a good patriot, but she loves Malcolm. Well, right on cue. Yes, Malcolm Malcolm does not miss his cue. He hears her saying that aloud and, and comes in. He's been hiding under the window. And <laughs> he comes in. And they sing this beautiful love duet together. Finally, she gets her second love duet with her second man. Yeah. <laughs> this one's the, the right one. And they pledge their love for each other.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewell. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen! So happy to be here, Pat. I am so happy that you are here to help us with another opera based on a literary source. That is that is my specialty. <laughs> it is, it is. And this is a Belcanto Opera Rossini's La Donna del Lago, The Lady of the Lake. And before we talk any more about the opera, we need to take just a moment and say thank you to all the people who were involved in creating this beautiful CD that we were listening to. This CD was recorded at the Rossini Festival of 1983. And I've never been to the Rossini Festival, but over the years I've been hearing about it. And I'd love to go to it one of these days. Just bel canto, bel canto. Wouldn't that be beautiful? (laughs) Sounds lovely. Well, some of these works, like this one, are performed terribly often a lot of places. So wouldn't that be magnificent? Where does it take place every year? Is it the same place? I believe it's held in Rossini's birthplace, Pizarro, Italy. Oh, yeah, I'll I'll take that vacation with you. Yeah, yeah, does that sound nice? (laughs) The orchestra that played on the CD at this festival was the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, and they were under the direction of Maurizio Polini. And the chorus was the Coro Philharmonica di Praga under chorus master Lubomir Matel. And apologies for any mispronunciations. Yes, and as for our singers, the part of Elena is played by Katia Ricciarelli. Malcolm, remember this is the, the trousers role, is Lucia Valentini Tarani. Uberto, or also James, is Dalmasio Gonzalez. Rodrigo is Dano Rafanti. And Douglas is Samuel Ramey. (laughs) Thank you one and all for all this beautiful, beautiful music. And now, Kathleen, time for the Opera Helmet Quiz. Yes. Which isn't much of a quiz, but I'm just going to (laughs) ask you to bring us up to date on our plot. Yes, I can give you a synopsis. So we are in Scotland in the 16th century under King James V. And James likes to disguise himself as a, as a common man and walk amongst his people and, and has been doing that. He runs into a beautiful lady named Elena when he becomes separated from his friends. She takes him in and brings him to her cottage in the middle of the lake. She is the lady of the lake. 
<laughs> and a trusting soul. Yes. <laughs> Very trusting. <laughs> and of course, she does not know that he is a king. He is disguised as a man named Uberto. And Elena is, is tempted, perhaps, by his noble mien and his very flirty demeanor. But she <laughs> is in love with a man named Malcolm, who she cannot be with because she is betrothed to a man named Rodrigo. She has a very complicated love life. But the king, nevertheless, leaves with his heart full of hope and joy because he's found this beautiful woman. And then Malcolm comes back into the scene and we meet him and Elena gets to gets to see her love again but her father still disapproves and wants her to marry Rodrigo. We also learn that King James and Elena's father are bitter mortal enemies. They are on opposite sides of a political divide, so there's some Romeo and Juliet stuff going on. And when we left all of our characters, Malcolm and Elena had just pledged their love for each other and the king had gone back to join his friends. And we are about to come into the eve of battle. Yes. Kathleen, before we carry on with our story, I have to mention something that as I was processing this opera in my head, it occurred to me not that long ago, well, a couple of years ago on Opera for Everyone, we did on episode 65, Ernani, a Giuseppe Verdi opera, which also is about a woman who wins the affections of three different men. It is also based on a piece of literature by a very famous author, in this case, Victor Hugo. And Ernani is the title character, one of the men, that's the man who is the true love of Elvira, the woman who has the three suitors. But this woman has three suitors, not just Ernani, but also a king in disguise and the man who she is intended to marry. She is supposed to marry, but she does not want to marry. Sound familiar? It, it makes me think that there's really <laughs> no new <laughs> stories under the sun. <laughs> well, you know, and interestingly, as you said earlier, the king must be revealed. In this story, there are a lot of other twists and turns of the plot, but the king is revealed to be the king. Ultimately, the king gives his blessing to the union of Elvira and Ernani. But it's many years later, 1844, when this first comes out, and it's Verdi. It does not have a happy ending the way our current opera will have a happy ending for our lovers. Well. Let's get back to Scotland. And okay, let's get back to Scotland. <laughs> see that happy ending. <laughs> Our lovers have pledged their love to one another, Malcolm and Elena. And now we're back outside again, and we're getting ready for conflict. We're getting ready for war. The Highland warriors have arrived. So we've seen the, the king's men at one point. That was our first big male chorus. And now we have the other side. The Highland warriors have come in and are getting ready to go to battle with the king and his forces. So we're going to have a little bit of plaid and a lot of singing. <laughs> Quite a lot of plaid, I imagine. <laughs> yes. Just a small note on plaid because... This just came into my head that I wanted to, to talk about this. There was a huge rage for tartans and clan tartans at the beginning of the 19th century when this was written as a mm. part of this Scottish romantic renaissance. One of the outcomes of the Jacobite rebellion is that the British monarchy banned the wearing of clan tartan for right. uh, many decades because mm -hmm. it was, you know, 
to, to break apart these, these sort of semi-feudal institutions. And at the beginning of the 19th century is when that is repealed and clan tartans not only become wearable again by the members of the clan, it also enters high fashion. So you start to see women, especially British women, wealthy women wearing either clan tartans they have no real <laughs> right to be wearing right. or tartans that are, are completely made up just for the sake of fashion. There's a big, you know, Scottish fashion rage at this time. So that that's a part of why this opera really takes off in the time period that it does is there's already this big focus on Scotland and Scottish fashion as, as this exotic other. And that element of fashion never entirely goes away. It does not. It cycles through on a regular basis. It's true. Queen Victoria was obsessed with it. She wore all sorts of tartan and, and often tartans, as I said, that were no real clan tartan. They were just made up. <laughs> but yes, I mean, you can see it today. I have tartan in my own closet. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> then, but that's that's just because you love Sir Walter Scott, right? It's true. It's, it's my tribute to Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear the clansman. <laughs> opera for everyone and we're listening to Rossini's The Lady of the Lake. That was the Highlanders who are getting ready for battle to maintain their independence even from the Scottish king because they want to be independent in the Highlands and Rodrigo their leader believes he is going to be married to the most beautiful woman around the Lady of the Lake Elena and he is he is quite a chest-thumping, self-assured fellow, that Rodrigo. <laughs> he does not lack for confidence, it's true. He really doesn't. It's mm. funny because we really don't get that much of Rodrigo in this opera, but he does make quite an impression when he comes in. 
Well, and when he sings, it is, you know, hold on to your your seat cushion there. He is just belting it out with those high notes. Yes, and we get kind of an amazing battle of the tenors over Elena coming up quite soon here. And you get to see they are really attempting to outdo each other. And, and we are we are the beneficiaries of, of that battle. We get some absolutely just verbal pyrotechnics. <laughs> when they threaten a duel with each other, it becomes, even though the king is going to ask for his sword, it is going to be a vocal battle. <laughs> In this scene, though, he's a little disappointed. As proud as he is, as self-confident as he is, and he sees Douglas, the father of his intended woman. Where is she, he wants to know. And Douglas is trying to cover up a little bit, and finally she's brought in. And she's uh, she's not super happy about being there, but she's there. It's true. She's doing her duty. But Rodrigo may be a little overconfident, but he isn't stupid. And he is able to see that she is not enthusiastic. And being the self-confident man that he is, he assumes every woman would be enthusiastic to be with him, I'm sure. So he does <laughs> notice that she's not that into it. And Douglas sort of tries to say, oh, she's just so modest. <laughs> but yeah, it's not right. convincing. Yeah, it's this interesting mix of this personal romantic plot going on, plus this martial psyching up and getting ready to go into battle to fight for their freedom. But the piece that we want to let you all hear right now is this interesting interweaving and complex number where the father is going to be talking to Elena. And by the way, they can't all tell what one another is saying. It's one of these fabulous things that can happen on a stage that can't happen in real life where the father figures out what's happening and he's warning her to behave and do her duty. And Rodrigo wonders why she's so pale. And as you say, he's a smart man. He's figuring it out and he wants to overcome it. Yes, and Rodrigo still believes that he should declare his love to her because, you know, he's a warrior, but he's also a lover. Like all of our male characters, that's an essential part of their identity. They are, they love as hard as they fight and fight as hard as they love. <laughs> so Rodrigo declares his love for her, hoping that this will have an effect. But when it doesn't, as you mentioned, they all sort of sing together about their, their fears and anxieties. Right. And just at the end of all of this going on, of course, onto the stage, we're going to have an entrance from Malcolm. This is just who we were missing. <laughs> right. It Well, it's going to add to the consternation, but again, complicating matters. He comes on and his first interest at this point is to join in the good patriotic fight. And he joins Rodrigo, not as a rival, but as a, as a brother in arms. Mm -hmm. I give you my sword. In other words, I am here to fight alongside of you. But let's hear the consternation and uh, enjoy this beautiful bacanto.
walked into quite a scene, and it's not just a scene of a bunch of the Highlanders getting ready to go into battle. No, it is. It is. Everybody's singing about how much they love Elena, as always. And as you mentioned, it is Malcolm's first concern, though, to pledge his sword and his loyalty to Rodrigo. He is not a rival to Rodrigo in, in a political sense. And so he comes in and he does pledge his sword to him, and Rodrigo and Malcolm offer friendship to each other. But it is very clear when Rodrigo introduces Elena as his fiance that Malcolm is troubled by that, that she's troubled by that. That's putting it mildly. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Troubled. (laughs) Troubled in opera means I'm going to sing like mad about how upset I am. Yeah. So they all begin to unravel these complex emotions uh, the best way that they know how, which is in a gorgeous quartet where we get to hear Rodrigo talking about his suspicions, Elena and Malcolm talking about how much they love each other, but how they have to hide that from everybody else. Douglas talking about how angry he is that she is not obeying him. And then Albina in the chorus acting in that sort of Greek chorus role of explaining overall what is happening from a more neutral perspective. So we get some beautiful music here, this gorgeous quartet. Yeah. 
well after all this consternation of our characters and all their feelings about who loves who and who doesn't love who and who's going to marry who and how we feel about that, a little jolt of reality as we hear an announcement, the enemy is approaching. All these guys who are getting ready to fight need to start taking that pretty seriously. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's true. I have to sort of put put Ellen on the back burner. <laughs> yeah, have, yeah. The, the a, wedding a can wait. <laughs> right. The the wedding veil. Let's just set that aside for right now. <laughs> and there's an interesting thing that happens on stage, and it feels a little incongruous. It feels a little appropriate because we want to bless things before we send our soldiers off to fight. You have this group of druid-looking fellows coming in. This, what's known as the Chorus of the Bards is going to happen. Rodrigo is going to ask for a blessing, and we will have this Chorus of the Bards in the, in the opera. We're not gonna have a chance to listen to it right now. By the way, this, I'm just gonna take a moment to interject to all the listeners, please, whatever streaming service you have or if you'd like to buy a cd or even an lp get a copy of this entire opera and just put it on and listen to it you don't need to watch it although it's lovely if you do just have it on it is such a good listen right from the beginning to the end and you'll hear all of this and now that you've heard what the story is you'll you'll piece it together you'll know exactly what's going on particularly if you listen to it more than once and I can enter a similar plug for, you know, if you have any interest whatsoever, the Scott poem is also beautiful. It's fallen, as I said, a little out of fashion, but especially things like this where we mention these druidical looking figures, that is treated in much more depth in the source material. There's a, a whole subplot involving a prophecy, etc., etc. So I, I urge you, if you're a fan of 19th century literature, to check out The Lady of the Lake by Scott. Yeah, so this chorus of the bards, also worth worth knowing that this was one of the pieces of operatic music that was embraced by the Italian nationalists during the struggles for independence in the 19th century, in the struggles for Italian nationalism as they were working to become a separated country, not under any other empire. So. So the plot has intruded. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the plot has intruded. And we're coming to the very final piece of Act One. So that means it's going to be a good one with a lot of <laughs> a lot of voices getting ready for war. And you're going to hear the martial tone. You're going to hear those horns. And you're going to know that this is a group of people psyching themselves up to go to battle. This is a group of people who are maybe not going to battle, sending their men off and wishing them well and wishing them victory.
listening to Opera for Everyone, and today's opera is The Lady of the Lake, La Donna del Lago by Rossini. And Kathleen, I'm so glad you're here to help me with this opera. It, it has a lot of romance in it. It does. And you know what? This may be the first opera I've done with you that has a happy ending. Is that true? Maybe. <laughs> you need to do some older operas with me. The I older know. the opera, the, the likelier it's going to have a happy ending. That's, that's <laughs> well, I'm true. Very, I'm happy to be here for, for one happy ending, at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's good. It's good. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, in light of the fact that there's a war going on, it's I know, pretty I amazing. Say, where we left our characters doesn't necessarily seem like there's going to be a happy ending. Mm-hmm. But have no fear. There's even going to be some blood, but, but there, there'll <laughs> be a happy ending. We promised you that. <laughs> so we open on a wooded setting with Uberto, our king in disguise. Yes, we are back on the island in the middle of the lake where most of our story takes place. The battle is raging. When we left most of our characters, they were about to go into battle. That battle is taking place, but somewhere else. And Uberto has left, assumed his disguise again, because he is concerned about Elena. He knows that she's probably in the thick of things because her father is one of the lead generals of this counterinsurgency, I guess you would say. And so he has left the battle to go find her, and he does find her in the woods about to go hide out in a cave and he of course declares his love (laughs) she doesn't know that he's left the battlefield and is actually the king still and she's a little uh, cold to him uh, just a little confused by his presence she is i mean this is a man she never thought she'd see again probably and i don't know maybe she's starting to get a little wise to the fact that it's a bit strange that this man is kind of popping up following her. (laughs) She's also now officially made her declaration of love with Malcolm. She's done it in front of all of us. And so I think that she realizes that if she is going to say that she's going to be true to Malcolm, she needs to do that in in action as well. So yeah, she is is quite cold to him. She's also very concerned too, because she doesn't know where her father is. She just knows that this battle is raging and she knows her father's in the thick of it. So she's really worried about the people she loves and doesn't have time for this. (laughs) Yeah, this seems a little frivolous to her. And here is this man, and when he doesn't get a warm reception, because the last time he saw her, they were seeming very close. Yeah. He's saying that I love you, and I may have to die by your hand if you don't reciprocate. This seems there's a a mismatch of emotion here. Yeah, a little bit. You know, it's like they had a good first date, but... You know, he was way more into it than she is, I think. Exactly, exactly. And she's just saying, calm down. Mm -hmm. We can be friends. That's it. Yes. That's all. And believe it or not, that leads to a lovely duet. Believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does lead to some beautiful music. There's one really important part of this, too. When she does reject him and just offer friendship, he says to her, all right, I get it. But I still love you, so I'm going to give you this token, and it's a gold ring. And he gives it to her and says, if you ever need help, just bring this to the king, and he will help you no matter what. And she doesn't really understand what this means, because she 
he just seems like a shepherd <laughs> to her. Why does he have a gold ring? Who knows? How does he know the king? But she accepts it. And there's a kind of fairy tale moment to this. It's it's It feels like a moment in a fairy tale. It's like this little talisman that she's been given. And there actually are, this this appears in a lot of fairy tales, the, the gold ring that does something magical or the token that you can bring to the king and he will grant you one wish or something like that. So there's a, a sort of little bit of a fairy tale aspect here. And it does set up, of course, how this will progress at the end when, when everybody's identities are finally revealed. Well, yes, and he explains, though, when he gives it to her, because she's confused, I once rescued the King of Scotland from certain death, and he rewarded me. And that's why I have this ring. But it wasn't unusual in actuality to have a token from the king to say, yeah, here's proof that mm-hmm. I'm owed a favor. So it's it's fairy tale, but it's also, there's a little something real going on, I think. I mean, yeah. not in this story, but... No, but it's, <laughs> it's as close to like a marriage vow, I guess, as he can give her. He's giving a ring to her because he can't give her a ring in truth. And he's acted in a gentlemanly fashion, mm-hmm. I would argue, also. Yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's, been, he's been pretty straightforward with her, so... And he's given her a ring. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, straightforward if you acknowledge the fact that he's completely lied about who he is. Kings do that all the time. You just got his par for the course. <laughs> but he hasn't, they're alone. He hasn't pressed himself on her. So uh, we'll give him credit for that. So let's hear them sing about all this. <laughs> beautiful but they have not been entirely unobserved at the end there no it's true at the worst person to possibly over here has come in and joined their their duet and made it a trio and that's rodrigo who sees the king and doesn't recognize him but also kind of knows that he can't be a highlander he's not dressed like one yes he says you don't look like a highlander (laughs) and he 
asks him point blank, are you a partisan of the king? Mm-hmm. And he has to say yes. Mm. And the king recognizes Rodrigo. Mm-hmm. So trouble is brewing. We have two of our lovers in the same place now. And they start to argue not only over their political differences, but they also are both obviously in love with Elena, who is right there. And so they decide that they're going to have a duel to decide, I guess, both the fate of the country and of her. Yeah, settle it like men, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so she she is upset about this, trying to stop them, trying to get them to see reason, but they won't. They rush off out of the scene to go have their duel, and she follows them, trying to stop them. And <laughs> we will actually not see this. This all happens off stage. Yes. They do fight this duel. She's not able to stop them. And Rodrigo will lose the duel and ultimately be killed. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, that solves one problem for <laughs> Elena. <a> build up <laughs> to this. And then it just happens off stage. But as soon as Elena and the, the boys leave, Malcolm comes rushing in and is looking for Elena to try and keep her safe, just like the king was, just like Rodrigo was, mm. and finds that she is gone. And Albina, her attendant, is the only one there. He is extremely distressed and thinks he's lost her, really, and decides that, that there's basically no point in living anymore. It's this very sad song.
And to add to Malcolm's personal grief, grief on a larger scale, he gets news that the King of Scotland has defeated the Highlanders. And in this number that we're about to hear, we have Malcolm, we have all of the warriors, we have Albina, and they are all processing their defeat after that rousing song gearing themselves up to have this enormous battle. This is their song acknowledging the defeat that they've suffered. to La Dana del Lago, The Lady of the Lake by Rossini. We're in the final scene of this opera. We are no longer on the battlefield. The battle has been lost by all but one of the characters we know in this opera. The king's forces have been victorious. We haven't even seen the king dressed as a king, but that's about to change. We're in the palace. And Elena, the title character, La Dana del Lago, has gone to the palace because she has heard that that's where she might find her father. Yes, her father has been imprisoned as a consequence of having lost the battle and being a a high-ranking official on the other side, has lost the battle and is imprisoned. And actually, Malcolm is also imprisoned there, though she doesn't initially know that when she goes there. He has gone to the palace to try and save her because he knows she was on her way there. A bit of a comedy of errors a couple times here where everybody's kind of chasing Elena and causing causing problems for themselves. She goes to the palace and she has no hope uh, really that she's gonna have any power, but she does have this ring. And so she goes there and she sees that Uberto is there. She, she sees him, she hears his voice from another room. Her friend. And she thinks, oh my gosh, a friend, right? She's like, he will help me find the king. And of course, she realizes yeah. when she sees them and sees the way his courtiers behave around him that Uberto mm-hmm. is the king, King James. And so there's this big moment of, of realization for her. And 
he has been very harsh with his political prisoners, with both Malcolm and Douglas, and has refused initially to set them free, even though she has begged him. But he's softened by his love for her. And he, I think in his heart, doesn't want to be as harsh as he's had to be politically. So he relents and he lets Malcolm and Elena be together. Well, there's this wonderful moment where she does present the ring to him, this semi-magical, this this promise, mm-hmm. I will give you what you ask, or I, the king will give you, I, if you present this ring. Right. He has got to keep his promises. That's how fairy tales work. <laughs> if you present the talisman. That's right. That's right. But yeah, that makes him remember that he's made her this promise and that he's cared about her because she was kind to him. And, and, and on a really simple level, it is also this little morality tale of hospitality. She took him in when he was in need. Right. So he owes her a debt. And this is how she chooses to collect it, is to have the two men that she loves be set free. And it works. Malcolm and Elena are allowed to be together. Douglas has relented, and also Rodrigo is dead, so. That's convenient. (laughs) Right, convenient (laughs) that, that it's no longer a love quadrangle. And Douglas is set free, and we get this beautiful happy ending to everything because peace has been restored. The the king has set down the rebellion. There is peace in the land, and the two lovers get to be together. It's quite beautiful. And duty for the king has won out, and love for Elena has won the day. It is. And the king does have a moment to say that these men have wronged me, and they have wronged me profoundly and they deserve punishment Mm -hmm. but I will honor my vows because I am a man of my word he makes it very clear that he is being magnanimous in every possible way it's true so that everyone understands that he is a gracious and good king and he does actually come off very well at the end here I would say he seems a, a very noble character despite the fact that he's been running around the countryside flirting with random women while there's a war on. <laughs> but at the end, he resumes his kingly his kingly mane and his duties, and, and he comes through and does the right thing. He does. And that's why we get to have a happy ending, because he, the man in, in power chooses to not punish and to instead make peace. Right, because he didn't force himself on her on the couple of, well, several instances when he might have. He does not, because he does have the power to do it and get mm-hmm. away with it, and he does it. It's, it's an interesting take, and it's, it's an interesting story for the fact that we all the time we follow the characters who lose in the battle, mm-hmm. but it doesn't always turn out the way you expect it to, and yet it didn't turn out tragically either. Which for an opera, in my experience, very unexpected that it would turn out happily. <laughs> I think I may have to invite you to some Baroque operas, Kathleen. I think Kathleen. so. <laughs> I started with Lucia de Lammermoor, after all. Oh, well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay, well, opera is about emotion and drama and just get into it and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yes, I agree. And it's one of the things I, I love the most about opera, whether it's a happy ending or slightly less happy ending. <laughs> yes, tragedy. Right. I've always loved Shakespeare. Even if there are 12 bodies on the stage at the end, you enjoy the craft of it and the story. So the same is true of opera. Yes, yes. And speaking of the fact that you can pull in Shakespeare and any other writers, and I mention all the time that I love to use you as a resource for these operas based on literature, 
I'd just like to mention to our listeners that Kathleen, you write this amazing set of essays that you put up as a as a blog, as a subscription email, or I'm not quite sure what to call it, but it's <laughs> called Constructive Criticism it by is. Kathleen Vanderwill. <laughs> And it comes out periodically, and it does those things that you were just doing right now, where you usually you talk about a piece of television or a film, and then you pull in other films and literature and all kinds of synthesis going on. And I love reading those. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I know what to call it either. <laughs> but yes, it's on... We'll just call it constructive criticism. Constructive criticism. It's, it's its own thing. It's on Substack. So if you are looking for it, that's where to find it. It's called Constructive Criticism. And yeah, I, I think I started writing these pieces mostly because I do so much reading and watching and listening and yes. absorbing of content. And I often don't really know how to synthesize all of the things that I, that it's all just fluttering around in my brain and, and I want to pull it all together. And I found that if I sit down and try and write about it, then it all kind of knits together in a way that's yes. coherent. So I think they're, they're kind of a, a therapy for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. I, I confess that some of the some of the things you watch might be a little rough for my taste, but but <laughs> you but, say this, you watched opera. That's so <laughs> That's true. That's true. I know you know what? It's I love the the analysis and anyone who enjoys the comments that you bring to opera. I think would actually enjoy this as well. And it doesn't take that long to read them, but well, I, I take that back. It takes a little while for me to read them because I want to reread them and reread them because you, you bring a lot to bear and I mean, it won't surprise anyone who listens to you speak. You, you're a wonderful writer. So <laughs> Constructive Criticism by Kathleen Vanderwill. And what do you do? You just Google it and how does a person sign up? Yeah. So, I mean, the easiest way would be to go to Substack, which is a it's basically a, a blog hosting platform and then just type in constructive criticism and, and you'll find it. Or you could just type type it into Google, constructive criticism substack. <laughs> they come up periodically as I watch things and, and they start sparking in my brain, then I'll sit down and write maybe once a week or so. So, but yeah, sign up for the email list. I would I would yeah. love for more readers. <laughs> right, I loved the one you wrote on uh, Le Carré. Yes, that was my, my last one. I got very into mystery novels and spy novels. I think my next one's gonna be about Agatha Christie. You and I have been talking about that a little bit offline. So mm -hmm. yeah, check it out. <laughs> Good. Okay, back to La Donna del Lago and our interesting conclusion with the king being magnanimous. And we're going to get our happy ending. It's, it's kind of an interesting political resolution to this whole story. It is. I, thinking back on the whole story, it's almost about a civil war that didn't happen. I mean, there obviously is a battle that takes place. There is fighting. There are people who die. But when you think back to the actual civil wars that the Jacobite Rebellion represented, which was in living memory when the piece that this is based on was written, because Lady of the Lake was written in 1810, and the Jacobite Rebellion, the final battle was 1746. So it would have been within... And could you just, could you just highlight for us what the Jacobite Rebellion 
was all about. Yeah. Oh, goodness. How to do that in a really short period of time. Um, Yes. (laughs) Very complicated topic, but basically it was attempted coup. The Catholics were attempting to replace a Protestant English king with a Catholic king who mm. um, had a claim to the throne, um, and his he's known as Bonnie Prince Charlie. You may recognize that name. Yes. So the attempt was made to, to place him on the English throne, and of course the English were not super excited about that. But the, he had a lot of <laughs> Scottish backers as well as French backers, and they fought some very, very horrible bloody battles in Scotland. And as a punishment for that rebellion after they beat the Scots at the Battle of Culloden in 1746, they basically destroyed Highland culture as much as possible and really outlawed a lot of the things that made Scottish clan culture what it was at the time. And so you have this period, the second half of the 18th century, where Scotland doesn't really have a sort of clear national identity anymore because they are really suffering so Scott, one of Scott's projects is really to revive a different vision of Scotland. And so that's why he's reaching back farther in history. Mm. And this culminates in George the Fourth visits Scotland in 1822. And he is uh, probably better known as the prince. He was the prince regent. And after he became king, he was the first English monarch to visit Scotland in two centuries. And he went... And Scott is the one who planned his trip, basically. And not only did he plan his Sir trip, Walter Scott, Sir Walter is Scott the one. was. Yeah, he was. He was sort of an attaché. He was. He was sort of this unofficial ambassador of Scotland in that sense. And so he plans this whole trip. Interesting, the role of the arts. Very much so, including an an intense amount of pageantry. All of the things that you see depicted in Scott's novels. Mm -hmm. were very much on display, whether they were really actual traditions that were still continuing at the time. Most of them were not. One of them being tartan. Everybody wore tartan, including King George. And there is a very funny anecdote. King George was a rather portly gentleman. He enjoyed drinking and eating a lot. Mm -hmm. And they had measured him for his tartan. And by the time he got there, he did not fit into his kilt Mm. anymore, but he wore it anyway. And so... Everybody had to just sort of <laughs> smile and and because he was the king, even though you yes. his his clothes were not fitting him, he probably looked ridiculous. But there was this whole pageant of like we're going to do traditional Scottish dances, we're going to all wear kilts, and it was this big revival of a peaceful version of Scottish culture. And this, I think, this story is very much fitting into Scott's attempt to do that. Oh, that's fascinating. And here we have Rossini making it more widely available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And really, really emphasizing that peaceful, happy ending to a story that could have been a lot bloodier and a lot could have ended much more sadly. <laughs> right. For a story that includes the big scene of the psych up for war and all of this and even has a duel in it, there's no bloodshed on stage. Mm-hmm. It's not a bloody story. Exactly. Well, shall we listen to our rousing finale here with everyone on stage. And we're going to start off with Elena thanking the king for his gracious magnanimity. She is so grateful that he has pardoned her father, her husband-to-be. She will marry her true love, Malcolm, and her father is going to be happy with it. There is no more Rodrigo. (laughs) And everyone on stage is going to be singing the joys of peace. I think that is a wonderful way 
to end the story. <laughs> it is. And Kathleen, once again, thank you so much for joining me on Opera for Everyone. Always happy to be here. Oh, 
to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright, joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe... Opera is for everyone.